uh, etc. But a lot of family get-togethers and uh, neighbourhoods, you know, we come together and that sort of thing. And it's just not ordinary, is it, this time of year? We put ourselves through at this time is quite unusual, really. It's not ordinary. We spend more money, we eat more food, we read more junk mail, we pray more. Let's face it, when you get to the mall, who does not pray for a car park? If you don't, please stand up and fly around the room. You know? <clears throat> it's not ordinary at all. Think back to that first Christmas. If there was one word that could describe that night, it would be ordinary. The sky was ordinary, the occasional gust of wind blowing leaves around, cooling the air a little, clouds floating past the moon like they had every other night, the sheep in the field were usual, the shepherds were ordinary and usual, smelling like the sheep they cared for, wearing the only clothes they had and looking just as woolly as those sheep. An ordinary night, ordinary sheep, ordinary shepherds. But if it were not for God who loves to add the word extra to the word ordinary, that night would have gone unnoticed. But God did do something extraordinary that night. The sky exploded with brightness. Sheep that had been silent began to stir. Shepherds who were asleep now rubbing their eyes, looking into the face of an extraterrestrial. The ordinary night, no more. The angel came at night because that's when lights are best seen. And it's when they are most needed in the dark times of our lives. And God comes to us in much the same way. And I wonder if you, as you sit here this morning, if you need the Lord to visit you in your darkness. Do you need an extra to attach to your ordinary? Do you really need God to come through for you in some way? Is there a need that only God can meet that you have this morning? And it is great that you are here today because what you're doing is you are positioning yourself. The Bible tells us where two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst. He is here today. And he's willing to meet us at our point of need. Christmas time is a great time of year to be reminded that we are not alone. In fact, Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin, that's Mary, will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God is with us. His very name reminds us that he is here, he is present, he is with us. Christmas time is a time of giving. Anyone finished their Christmas shopping? Anyone dropped big hints as to what you would like for Christmas? Well, the truth is we don't have to drop any big hints to God for what we would like for Christmas, as it were. He knows our every need. We need more of Jesus. We need to open our lives up to him more and more to allow him access to our hearts, to our lives. Truly, God is the greatest giver of all. Many will be familiar with the verse from John chapter 3, verse 16, that says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And I love what Chuck Swindoll says about this verse. He says, God, he's the greatest giver, so loved that's the greatest motive, the world, the greatest need, that he gave the greatest act, his one and only son, greatest gift, that whoever, the greatest invitation, believes in him, the greatest opportunity, shall not perish, that's the greatest deliverance, but have eternal life, the greatest joy. God isn't a great. One of the Hebrew words, all these names that he has, he is, is El Shaddai, El Shaddai, which means creator of bounty, 
bestower of gifts, El Shaddai. Not El Chipo, God of just enough. But El Shaddai, God of more than enough. God of the willing. God of the one who is willing to bestow gifts upon us. He gives the greatest and he gives the best. To the world, the greatest need, he gave his son the greatest gift. In the heart of children, young and old, there's a sense of expectation and anticipation, isn't there, at this time of year. And in Israel, before that first Christmas, when the angels lit up the sky, there was also a sense of expectation where they lived. An expectation that the Messiah, the Christ, the deliverer of God would come at some stage. And Jewish expectation had been deepening and in some respects becoming more definite during the centuries preceding that first Christmas. So much so that at the time of Jesus' birth, it seemed to the Jew that the promised Messiah, his appearing would be very soon. And God did send his son to first century Palestine. Well, why then? What was significant about that time? Yeah, did, did God invite the Archangel Michael over and say, hey, let's have a stab at the dark at a date, you know? Let's have a look at the celestial timetable and, and pick a date, will you? Okay, Jesus, you can come then. I assure you, he did not. Let's look now at this verse in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law. It refers to the set time. And Ephesians 1.10 speaks of the times reaching their fulfillment. Now in the Greek language, there are two words for the word time. One is kairos and the other is chronos. Kairos means that kind of opportune time. An opportunity that comes along, it just pops up maybe by accident. Then chronos, from which we get the word chronology, refers to an orderly progression of events where everything flows and follows its proper sequence. And the verse in chapter 4 of, uh, sorry, chapter 4 of Galatians, verse 4, which is read, the word that is used there is chronos, indicating that God didn't decide on the spur of the moment to take advantage of an opportune time, but rather God planned and orchestrated the sequence of events, and when the time was just right, he sent his one and only begotten son to the world. So what does it mean to say when time had, the set time had fully come and they had reached their fulfillment? It means it was just the right time, not too late, not too early, the right precise time. So looking at the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, which tell us of the life of Jesus, we see something very significant, I believe, and very interesting in those times. See, in Israel, when Jesus was born, there were certain influences or pressures that the people lived under that were very blatant and ruthless. Much more than they had been in the past. It was a very hostile time and a very hostile place. In Israel at the time, we see there were five dominant influences or pressures, powers at play, if you like, that kept the people oppressed in their everyday life. Understand it was the first time in human history these five powers or influences or pressures had been concentrated in the one place at the one time. Well, what were those pressures, Paul? That's a great question to ask. Thank you for asking that. Don't, don't interrupt again, though, please. <clears throat> those question, the question is, what were those pressures? The first one was this. There was military oppression. Military oppression. Israel was an enemy-occupied land. It had foreign troops all around it. The legions of the Roman Empire occupying it and keeping the people in subjection. There was also 
religious power. There was a harsh legalistic religious power that was present. The Sanhedrin and the synagogue set a very strict religious order that kept the people in bondage. The third power present and influence was a repressive civil power. Remember the house of Herod? They were responsible for the murder of all the two-year-old and younger infant boys in Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth and other such atrocities. Then the fourth power that was present was a repressive economic power, a repressive economic system that taxed and bled the country and kept large portions of the populace in poverty. And finally, there was an increased satanic power manifesting itself. This was evidenced by the suffering caused by sickness and many people being demonized. You're turning from the pages of the Old Testament into the New. You know, we see uh, very little of the demonic in the Old Testament. There's the witch of Endor, and Endor, at least the witch of Endor in 1 Samuel, a few false prophets. But then you turn into the pages of the New Testament and it's whammo, it's, just, it's all on. There's a massive demonic uh, activity. There's sickness and storms that are created by the demonic. There's uh, outbursts like you've never seen before. It's incredible, really. Now, Jesus is born as a baby into this time and place in the midst of these repressive influences and pressures and powers that held the population in a stranglehold. Yet as we read Jesus' life, it appears he lives a life absolutely free from their influence. He deliberately lived above them. Think about it. You know, he resisted the religious power by healing on the Sabbath and continually and consistently doing that. It seemed like he deliberately went out of his way to do so. And in so doing, he insulted the religious power to the point where they looked at ways of trying to kill him. Their religion bound them, but he wasn't going to allow it to bind him. He lived free from that. We also see that he didn't bow to the repressive economic power. When he needed to pay his tax, what did he say to Peter? Peter, go fishing. The first fish you pull up will have a coin in its mouth. Use that coin to pay your tax and mine. And he also turned the you know, money changers out of the temple. He did not allow that economic power to oppress him. And as for the repressive civil power, he brushed aside Herod's death threat. I love this, looking at Luke chapter 13, verses 31 to 32. I'm going to read it. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, Go tell that fox. I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. Don't you love that? Go tell that fox. Fantastic. What a hero. <clears throat> he wasn't phased by the oppressive civil power. He also put Rome in his place when asked whether or not it's appropriate to pay taxes to Caesar. He says this in Matthew 22, verses 17 through 21. Tell us then. This is someone asking this. Tell us then. What is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked, Whose image is this and whose inscription? They said to him, Caesar's. So he said to them, Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And as for the satanic oppression... That was so evident. Jesus went head to head with the devil at the outset of his ministry in the wilderness when he tried to tempt him, if you recall. And um, Jesus overcame that temptation. And never again did Satan confront Jesus blatantly and in the open. 
Jesus cast out demons from people and uh, calmed demonically inspired storms. Uh, don't you love the way that Jesus lived? You know, going fishing to pay your taxes, telling Herod he's a fox, you know, stubbing his nose at the religious leaders, taking authority over the demonic realm. He truly lived an extraordinary life above the influences of those repressive powers. Yet, however, at the end of his life, things change. We see him voluntarily surrender to those powers. He let the religious power take him prisoner and interrogate him all night. He lets Herod cross-examine him as well, that civil power. He allows himself to be handed over to the military power who crucify him. And he allows the economic power to strip him naked, hang him on a cross, and then use his clothes as a prize in a game of dice. Then something even stranger happens. We see he surrenders to the satanic power. We see in John 14, Jesus said this in John 14, 30, and referencing and referring to the devil, the prince of this world is coming, he has no hold over me. Yet later in Luke 22, 53, he said this, this is your hour when darkness reigns. He surrendered to it. We see Jesus died on the cross, and at one point, there was one moment in time and one place in the entire universe where Satan thought he had everything in his grasp. He had the Son of God, a willing victim and helpless. Don't you love the word but? And suddenly, and it came to pass, when you're reading the Bible, they come up often. It's when God intervenes. The ultimate weapon of Satan, death itself, had no hold on him. For after three days, Jesus rose from the dead. And look at 1 Corinthians 2. I, I love this verse. This is referring to the, uh, the demonic and to the devil. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't understand what was going on. And I believe if Satan had known what was going to happen as a result of the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, he would have cut down every tree in Palestine, chopped it up to small pieces of wood suitable only for firewood, not to leave a piece long enough that they could turn into a cross to hang him on it. Because the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was a final straw for the devil. Colossians 2.15 And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, that's Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, by the cross. And in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, since the children have flesh and blood, that's referring to us, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives have been held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus identified with our humanity and broke the stranglehold of oppression over us so that we could live a life of freedom from slavery to death Fear, sin, religiosity, the demonic realm, everything. And in dying and rising, Jesus paved the way for us to have life. Life in all its fullness. The life that John 10.10 refers to, that abundant, full-on life. It speaks of abundance and, and not just merely getting by and not just ex existing, but an extraordinary life. That is a life that is lived to the fullest. Despite the oppressive nature of all that is around us, it might try to shackle us and pull us down. Romans 5.17 says, this is Paul speaking, he said, For if, by the trespass of the one man, that's referring to Adam in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So if, by the trespass of one man, Adam, back in Genesis, death reigned through that one man, how much more 
Well, those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. How much more? How much more should we reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? You see, 2,000 years ago, God stepped out of eternity into time in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, and showed us how to live in victory. He lived the perfect life. He lived above the oppressive negative influences, the demonic powers, and then at the appropriate time, he surrendered to them, dying on the cross. But he then rose from the dead and stepped back into eternity from time and is now seated at the right hand of the Father on the throne, far above all rule and authority, dominion, and every other title that can be given. The Bible tells us he led captivity captive. He conquered all things. He is the mighty, victorious one. And through him, Romans 8.37 says that we are more than conquerors. And that is why he came when he did. At a time when those five oppressive influences were exerting their power and were their most blatant and ruthless. He came then to break them and their stranglehold over you and me. Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And through Jesus, we can know freedom from everything that prevents us from living that victorious life. That's what being in Christ is all about. Because he came at Christmas and died and rose again at Easter, we are set free. Free to be all he's called us to be. The Bible refers to a number of things we are in Christ. And I want to just share a few of those this morning. When you think about all that Jesus has done, it's incredible. We are called by his name according to, and this is what it means to be in Christ. We are called by his name. Isaiah 43 refers to that. We're engraved on the palm of his hand. You know, I think the cool thing about that is engraved, it's not written. You ever written something with your pen on the palm of your hand? By the time night comes, you can hardly read it. Sort of washed off, perspiration. Engraved means it's chiseled there. It ain't going nowhere. We are engraved. Our names are engraved on the palm of his hand. We're delivered by the power. Delivered, sorry, from the power of darkness. Colossians 1 tells us that. We are a new creation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. We have a purpose for living. Jeremiah 29, 11 and Ephesians 1. We're not forsaken. Psalm 27 tells us that. We have a father. Psalm 68 says that. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that. We are loved with an everlasting love. Jeremiah 31, 3. We have an everlasting life. John 6 tells us that. We are more than conquerors. We have power to control our thought life, 2 Corinthians 10. We are beloved and we are chosen, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We are complete in him, Colossians 2. We are free from condemnation, Romans 8. We can forget the past and go forward in Christ, Philippians chapter 3. We've received the power that raised Jesus from the dead, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. We are redeemed from the curse of the law, thank the Lord, Galatians chapter 3. And we are healed by his stripes, 1 Peter chapter 2. And we always triumph in Christ according to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. That's amazing. There's so much more. Do you believe it? Jesus came at Christmas that he might die at Easter. Consider him placed in a cradle, hung on a cross, and wears the victor's crown. His life was bookended by a virgin's womb and an empty tomb. Everything about him was extraordinary. And through him, we too can live victoriously. We can know victory through him. He paid the price that we might be free. And one day he will return wearing that crown with the scars of the cross still evident in his hands. So to kind of encourage you today, let's endeavor through the power of the Holy Spirit in the encouragement of the scriptures. Live a life as he did, among but rising above 
the negative influences of life. To live to our highest potential. Your history books have not been written yet about your life or mine as to how they'll play out. So let's live in such a way that we give him glory, free from the oppression and the influences of this world. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're able, would you stand with me, please? God, I'd love to be able to pray with you. And if you need an extra to attach to your ordinary, you need God to come through and break through in some way. You need a suddenly or it came to pass. God to step in in some way. Maybe you need freedom from one of the oppressive powers I was referring to before, constantly pulling you down. Why don't you, just as we pray this morning, just raise your hands to heaven. Everyone's going to have their eyes closed. No one's going to see. It's just you and him. And in raising your hands to heaven is a sign of faith. He sees your need. He has made provision for it already in the cross. And the greatest giver of all is here today. Where two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst, bestowing gifts of healing, provision, a breakthrough. Romans 8 verse 32, a verse that is well worth memorizing says this, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He didn't hold Jesus back. Something like breakthrough or healing or provision or relationship being healed, whatever it is, it's nothing. He wants to minister to you. He wants to bring healing and wholeness to you. So let's look to the Lord in prayer this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Thank you, Lord. Father, I thank you that you see us in this room today. You see the hands that are raised. You see the condition of people's hearts. We come in faith to you, Lord, this morning, thanking you for Christmas. We again remember the wonderful gift you gave of Jesus. He came and dwelt amongst us. He lived victoriously and showed us how we are to live. Thank you for the power of the cross through which we can have victory. Lord, this morning I pray for each person and the needs that they have, that you would intervene in their situation. You would bring the extraordinary into the ordinary. Miracles were need, miracles are needed. There would be a but and a suddenly. Things would turn around in Jesus' name. For those who need healing, Lord, I pray for healing. I break the spirit of infirmity off people's lives today in Jesus' name. Healing would flow in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who need provision, Father, I thank you that you said you would provide all our needs according to your glorious riches in Christ Jesus. For those, Lord, whose relationships are not right, Father, I thank you that you said that you are our peace who's broken down every dividing wall. That, Lord, relationships would be restored in the name of Jesus. Work a miracle in those areas, we pray. You see the needs of your people, and we thank you that you have made provision for each person through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. You conquered the power of the enemy when you died and rose again, and we lay hold of all you have for us this day, that we too may live a life as a conqueror, not being condemned, not being condemned, but we might live healed, whole, free, free from the entanglements of the world, free to be triumphant in Christ, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I trust that's been a blessing to you. God bless you. We're going to worship the Lord.